We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. It is a joy and a delight to all of us every time we have to send more money to the government um, that we don't get to put in our own pocket. It is. It, it really is a highlight for all of us. I know that. And because of that, July 1st was a real celebration in this country because we got to pay another carbon tax, 14 cents on every liter of gas across the country is going now to more taxes. Yeah, gas is going to go up. It's more expensive. And yet wherever you are across this country, 14 cents a liter is going directly to the government with one rather curious caveat. If you live in British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, Newfoundland and Labrador, the Northwest Territories, Yukon, Nunavut, 14 cents per liter is going to the government. If you live in Quebec, 10 cents a liter is going to the government. Why is this? Should we be cynical? Nah, we'd never be cynical. Well, let me bring in Franco Terrazano, the guy who runs the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, a man who is never cynical about this kind of stuff. <laughs> Franco? No, I am cynical. I am cynical. I am cynical. Look, uh, Quebec is getting a special deal from the Trudeau government on Trudeau's carbon tax. I mean, the math is super clear. You laid it out. Everyone else is paying 14 cents a liter every time they gas up. Quebec, 10 cents a liter. So why is it? Because of politics. It's because of politics. Look, if the carbon tax was truly about the environment, okay, if it was truly about climate change, if it was truly about reducing emissions, then everyone, regardless of what province you'd be in, would be paying the same carbon tax, right? But look, the reason, I think, the reason uh, is just the politics of it. The Trudeau government doesn't want to go toe-to-toe with the Quebec government, so Quebec uh, isn't forced to pay as high as the carbon tax as everyone else in Canada. Okay, so essentially what you're saying, if I'm reading this, is at some point in the next year or two, we're going to have an election, uh, either a mandated election in 2025 or whenever Jagmeet Singh pulls the plug on this uh, coalition that they've got going. And the Liberals are looking at which provinces are a threat to them, and therefore they're giving them a break. And Quebec is one that they're worried they could lose seats in, so let's make sure that we're not as disliked there as we are other places where we either have it locked up or where we have a risk of no risk of losing anything well I, you know i just can't see another reason because i i have heard some of the pundit class some people on social media say well 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 hold on franco quebec has a cap and trade system so that's why it's less money but even that doesn't that doesn't live up to scrutiny right because just before july 1 nova scotia also had a provincial cap and trade carbon tax system uh in fact nova scotia was one of the leaders in reducing emissions in Canada. So since 2005, Nova Scotia has reduced its emissions by 36%. Since the same time, Quebec has reduced its emissions by 12%. So if it was all just about cutting emissions, wouldn't you think that Trudeau would say, okay, Nova Scotia, don't worry, you can keep your own provincial cap and trade system. But that's not what happened. Instead, on July 1, the Trudeau government hammered Nova Scotians with the single biggest carbon tax hike in Canadian history. All while Quebec, gets to pay the carbon tax of 10 cents per liter of gas, four cents per liter less than everyone else. 
I, I, I mean, I'm kind of surprised that under the circumstances then that we have not heard more yelling and screaming from provincial leaders around the rest of the country. I mean, there's been some, but not the kind that you might expect for this. I would have thought that most of the leaders would have been screaming at them saying, okay, explain yourself. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the things that we're urging some of the premiers to do uh, as we speak. Um, in fact, the only premier, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not watching everything they say all the time. But the only premier I've seen come out is uh, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith, who said, well, what's this all about, right? Because um, clearly it seems like the carbon tax is about politics, not the environment. Now, look, I have been clearly on the record saying that everyone in Canada should pay the exact same carbon tax rate, and that carbon tax rate is zero, because I'm a firm believer that no matter how many carbon taxes Trudeau makes Canadians pay, all it will do will cause people a lot of pain, but it won't actually do anything to reduce emissions because fueling up your uh, minivan in Canada or filling up your grocery cart in Canada uh, and that being more expensive with carbon taxes won't do anything to reduce emissions in China or Russia or India or in the United States. Uh, but all that is to say, look, I think Canadians should all have one carbon tax rate. That should be zero. Clearly, that's not what's happening right now. And I think what's so frustrating for so many people outside of Quebec is that Trudeau is essentially giving them a preferential treatment here. But again, it, it, like, it just it seems as though somebody should, other than Daniel Smith, should be yelling from the rooftops about this. I mean, Doug Ford, for example. I mean, they, yeah. you would think that there would be, would you not think that there would be some hay to be made here? Or is the reality that Trudeau, if your theory is correct, simply looks at Toronto and says, yeah, you know what, when the next election happens, whenever that is, doesn't really matter. We know Toronto is all going to go red anyway, so who cares? Well, Premier Doug Ford is one of them, Premier Scott Moe in Saskatchewan. Now, one thing, let's just wait and see how this plays out because this is still early in the game, right? July ju- July 1 just happened. That was uh, right when the tax hike really impacted Atlantic Canadians. And we've already seen the Atlantic premiers really come off the bench quite hard, swinging quite hard at Trudeau's carbon tax increase and Trudeau's second carbon tax that came in July 1. So we have seen the Atlantic premiers come off the benches hard there. And I think when they find out about this special deal that Quebec is getting, uh, they might also come swinging out against that. So we are still very early in the game. Let's see how this plays out. But certainly, I mean, we're speaking right now to to your audience in Hamilton. Certainly, uh, where is Premier Doug Ford? Get off the bench. Uh, You point out here, by 2030, because this goes up and up and up, by 2030, Quebec's provincial carbon tax will rise to 23 cents per litre, according to La Presse. By that time, the federal carbon tax will be 37 cents a litre everywhere else. So they're still going to be getting even a bigger break. Uh, By then, a Quebec family filling a minivan will pay $10 less than a family anywhere else in Canada. Uh, You do that every week, let's say. You're talking about a $500 difference. Yeah. I mean, in a, in the grand scheme of things, I guess $500 isn't going to change too many lives. On the flip side, it does seem, I don't know what the word is, it does seem crazy that one particular province has been centered out for some sort of break. And when I said off the top about being cynical, um, you know, I, the, 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 the interview from when Justin Trudeau was like 19 years old and was asked about people in Quebec, and he goes, well, Quebec is better. It keeps popping into my head, and it's like, all right, I don't know if that's the reason. I don't know what's going on, but it does seem kind of ludicrous. 
what's that saying? We're all equal. Some are just a little bit more equal than others. Uh-huh. Yeah, it kind of kind of feels that way. Or we're, or we're all in this together. We could pull any of the things that people have said over the last while. They're all good. They and they all mean absolutely oh. nothing. But hey, I just want to point out, right, that $500 a year, if, if we say hypothetically you're filling up your minivan uh, once a week, then you'd be end up paying 500 bucks less in carbon taxes than uh, the same family in Quebec in 2030. Now, that $500, remember, that's just the, that's just the difference, right? Yeah. The actual yeah. hit to the family, uh, to the average family in Ontario, for example, the, uh, the hit in 2030 every year going on into the future is more than $2,000. To pay for Trudeau's two carbon taxes, right? The five hundred bucks, like that's a lot for a lot of people, but that's only the difference between what yep. that family would be paying in Ontario versus Quebec. Um, but the total cost of Trudeau's two carbon taxes to the average family is significantly more than that. Yeah, we and got it, it becomes more than two thousand dollars every year once twenty thirty kicks in. Franco, you're a bluebird of happiness always when you come on <laughs> and talk about this stuff. Oh, sorry. Franco Terrazano, the CTF Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Thanks for doing this. Got to run. We had thought this was going to happen years ago, at least if you had ever grown up watching the Jetsons. We were going to have flying cars long before now. Well, that day may have finally arrived. The Federal Aviation Administration in the States has given special airworthiness certification to a flying car, an experimental test car, inspired... interestingly enough, by the car that Marty McFly drove in Back to the Future. Just to, of course, make this even more futuristic and all the rest. Keith Mackey with uh, Mackey International joins us. Keith, how are you today? Doing well. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, thank you for doing this, because I I guess this officially means we've arrived in the future. The future has come. Well, I'm afraid that the future's been here for a long time. (laughs) It just hasn't been very practical. I've been making flying cars since 1947. Really? And, uh, well, yeah, the idea was you wouldn't have to drive to the airport. You could fold the wings on the uh, alongside the fuselage and then somehow or other rotate the tail so that it wasn't in the way. You put a pusher propeller on it in the back and then have some means to drive it on the highway. And it worked, but it was a very poor car and an even poorer airplane. <laughs> Which isn't ideal. No. <laughs> but this so they've one... been building various variations of this over the years, and uh, uh, we haven't got a practical one yet. And that headline's a bit misleading. Okay. The FIA didn't, didn't certify this. It just says, okay, you guys are allowed to go out and test it. You can't carry any passengers with you or anything like that or do any work with it, but you're allowed to test it so we can find out how and if it works and when it is practical then the FAA will issue what we call a type certificate. In other words, a license that specifies exactly all the requirements to have one operate commercially or even privately carrying passengers. And that's going to be a ways away yet, I think. I was going to say, that doesn't sound like, well, regardless, I mean, if they are just at the point now where they're testing it, because it's not just about getting a car up into the air and flying around in a way that is you know, that you can get from point A to point B without crashing. If all of a sudden we have cars in the sky, more than one, you just know that if there's more than one, they'll find their way into the same spot and have a fender bender, which is a problem if they're in the sky. There's a lot of stuff that would go into this besides just making a car that could fly. Ah, you broke the code. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, There's there's so many things to consider. And now we're, instead of uh, maneuvering on the ground, 
we're maneuvering in the air. Can you imagine what it's going to be like at eight o'clock in the morning going into uh, Toronto <laughs> if you can buy these things for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars each? I think there'd be a lot of them. And of course, they're probably ninety five percent being operated. But people would have no experience in aviation right. or operating anything that flies. So we've got a number of uh, bridges we've got to cross before we get there. Oh, I, like okay. So we we have a hard time. Not just we. I mean anybody, but our society. We have a hard time driving with wheels on the ground in lanes that are drawn out for us with rules of the road. You're absolutely right. Now all of a sudden you put a bunch of these in the sky where there are different heights and there's no lines and you can go wherever. Uh, it, you're right. There there would be an awful lot of things that would probably have to be in place before I would consider getting into one of these. Absolutely. But you wouldn't have to worry too much because it wouldn't go very far due to battery technology. We don't really have a big enough battery to be able to power one of these things for very long. We could make short trips in it. But until we get the system perfected, that's probably all we'd want to do anyway. Yeah, but so but, these are things to consider. But here's the problem with even what you just described when you say, well, they're not going to go very far. That's fine if you're in an electric vehicle and your battery runs out and you just roll onto the shoulder. If you're flying 200 feet in the air and your battery runs out, it's a little bit of a different situation. Especially when all eight of your propellers stop. That's what I mean. You, have, you assume the glide path of a brick. <laughs> That's what I mean. Gravity is still intact in 2023. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, now you've got to have all and, kinds. And, 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 you know, that's on a nice day. What happens when there's thunderstorms or there's icing? So there's a lot of uh, considerations here. Yeah. And, and, and even if you are only, even if you say, well, fine, if you want to get into one of these things and drive yourself around and you crash, well, that's on you. But there are houses below and there are people below and there are cars below. Again, this, is, th- this sounds like getting the car into the air is the least of our challenges as far as trying to organize this. You're correct. And the ones that they're coming out with now are basically... Uh, almost identical to a, uh, a drone that you can buy for photography at your nearest big box store. In fact, the upper scale drones have excellent technology. They can fly autonomously and they'll do a lot of the things that these things will eventually need to do. So the foundation is already there. We just have to make them a little bit bigger and solve the rest of the problems that we've been talking about. But Keith, you just said something a couple moments ago that I think is bang on here. If all of a sudden these things become available, and let's say they're 100 or 150,000, I don't think you're going to have any difficulty finding a bunch of people to line up to buy these things. This will be the coolest toy to have, and anyone who's got that kind of money is going to sign up to get one immediately. Absolutely. They won't have any trouble selling them at that price. So, I mean, what do you think is the, I mean, is, is this ever going to be a thing then? Or is this always just a, pardon the pun, a flight of fancy? Is this, is this, is there a day coming when we are going to have people flying around in cars? Well, I, I think the first step is, of course, the technology to make the thing actually work. And then all the other problems present themselves and you've got to uh, regulate them and a very limiting factor to uh, eliminate the possibilities of collisions and them falling out of the air. So their utility, particularly initially, would be very, very limited until the experience is gathered and ideas are collected as to how we can actually do this. 
and make them a practical and safe alternative to trying to drive on the road. I think I'm with you. I'll be out driving on the highway. There won't be any traffic on there. That's right. We fly. That's right. Just watch out so they don't fall on top of you while you're driving. Uh, Keith Mackey. (laughs) Exactly. uh, From Mackey International, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Scott. Good to talk to you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Traffic is certainly one of those things that is going to get people talking and having an opinion. Well, in Ancaster, there are a lot of folks who are frustrated about traffic issues. Craig Kassar, who is the Ward 12 councillor, the councillor who represents Ancaster, uh, sat down with a bunch of them during a town hall a couple days ago, a few days ago, and uh, he joins us now. Craig, thank you for doing this, councillor. You're welcome. So what is the, I don't know if you can whittle it down, because ever, as many people as were at this town hall probably have their own view on what the biggest problem is, but what did you hear is the overriding issue with traffic in Ancaster that is causing people concern? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we had over 70 people at the town hall, so yeah, lots of opinions. But to sum it up, it's really about pedestrian safety. So when it comes to the volume of traffic and the speed of traffic, It's just a lack of prioritization and how that puts pedestrians and anyone not in the car uh, in danger. So is it the speed? Is it the roads that are no, that they're going too fast and there's not police there to catch them? Or is it something else that they're pointing to? Yeah, it's a combination of those things. Uh, Generally, we've built roads that are, are very wide. Uh, and encourage speeding. So and you talk to anyone who knows anything about engineering, and I've done a lot of research in this area over the past year, you know, engineering of a road t- determines how fast people will drive. And generally we've engineered them to drive very fast, even in within a suburban neighborhood. And so people do, not everybody, but there are a certain percentage of vehicles that drive very quickly and put the neighborhood in danger. And of course it's, well, we need more enforcement. Uh, and the challenge is enforcement is very difficult to do if, you know, everywhere all the time because limited number of police available to do that. So uh, people get frustrated with that, but um, it, it comes down to how do we make our, the design and the engineering of our neighborhoods and our, you know, our communities safer. And, and that's what the big push has been from people is what can you do? And you know, the default to that is traffic calming. And one of the most popular subcategories of that is what the city calls speed cushions or speed bumps. And up until now, there really hasn't been um, an avenue for residents to have those installed. And that's what I'm focusing on right now. So, okay, I was going to ask that. Is, is I mean, after you've heard this, was there a, a plan? Is it, I know that, for example, downtown, we've, we've, there's been a lot of talk about Main Street and, and even King Street with the LRT coming of how those might be changed to calm traffic. I don't know if you can do those things in Ancaster, but you're pointing, as I say, to, to speed bumps or other things like that. It, 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 you can't do anything up in Ancaster that would be as, What's the word I'm looking for? Extravagant. That's not the right word, but you get my point. As you're going to talk about doing on Main Street, can you? You can't do anything that big, right? Yeah, different uh, areas need different solutions. And just to uh, be clear, I campaigned on safer communities and over the last many months have been working on this. And we actually have a map on my website uh, logging all the locations within the ward where people have called in or emailed to say, hey, I have a concern here and we're tracking updates on there. So this just didn't start last week. But um, you're right, it is, there's different solutions. So 
traffic calming comes in, in many forms. Uh, it could be just the geometry of an intersection. It's really wide and allows people to come in very quickly and not have to slow down for a turn. So, you know, making that turn a little more or a little closer to 90 degrees could uh, help with that. But I think by and large, a lot of the situations will be saw or can be solved by uh, speed cushions. And that's what you know, people have been asking for and that's what staff would suggest as professionals be installed in, in many of the situations not all but many of the situations that we've identified in ancaster there are uh, quite a few roundabouts and they were put in in the last number of years many of them have those had success have those worked to do the job they were designed to do or have they not done what they ex- were expected to do yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the subcategories under traffic safety that many have reached out about. And some of these roundabouts have been in for you know, 10, 15 more more years. And there is a challenge or a safety problem we have with roundabouts because there's a combination of vegetation in the middle of a roundabout, which if done properly, can actually force people to slow down and be more careful, which you want. But the the lanes and the what they call the deflection uh you know the forcing a driver to turn and slow down before they turn isn't very effective so you have these kind of sweeping roundabouts where in some cases i've stood there and watched these cars don't even have to touch their brakes so to summarize when done well roundabouts can be really effective the way we've installed them they are not effective, and right now there's a review underway to figure out how we can improve them the way they are you know, in service review, meaning we're not going to do any major construction, but we're going to do things that are going to make it safer for pedestrians. I, I must say, there is one that I was driving by in Ancaster a while back, and I thought it was kind of odd that the roundabout was put in a way that the one path around it, you didn't even have to change course. It was a straight line. The other one, yeah. had, it, it seemed like, okay, someone missed. <laughs> it, it almost looked like the they put it in the wrong spot and it was like okay well they put a roundabout but it doesn't seem all that effective yeah i know exactly the one you've you're meant On talking about and many residents have brought that up and i've reviewed that with staff and some very uh, we need to have some very effective behavior changing modifications to all roundabouts but that one in particular that's on Stonehenge. yeah yeah that's the one exactly i was pointing to um just before i let you go if we're going to do if the city is going to do some things to try and either change roundabouts or whatever is there money in the i mean every everything's tight these days is there money in the budget to do these kind of things yeah, there is money. I can't speak to how much uh, Public Works has, but there is money to do this. Yes, and it's just a matter of how much and how quickly. Councillor Craig Kassar, Ward 12 Council, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. You're very welcome. Have a good day. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Saturday night, the Ottawa Red Blacks are in town to play against the Hamilton Ticats. Your Hamilton Ticats, uh, your uh, 0-3, that's me clearing my throat for obvious reasons, 0-3 Hamilton Ticats. Not the start I don't think too many people expected, especially when they brought in Bo Levi Mitchell this year. But here we are, 0-3, which um, shouldn't be all that unfamiliar to Ticat fans. It It seems like this is the way they start every year. However, they've now got Ottawa coming in uh, one and two, not exactly a powerhouse, but Jeremiah Masoli, remember him? Yeah, he's back from injury, and he apparently is going to be starting for the Red Blacks. What does all this mean? Should we be imbued with a wild sense of optimism or shuddering at what could happen if uh, Masoli goes off and, uh, 
Hamilton is 0-4. Steve Milton writes for the Hamilton Spectator. Colleague of mine joins us now. Steve, how are you today? Scott, how are you doing? Well, I'm probably better than 0-3. I don't know yeah. how much better than 0-3, but... Um, yeah. Pretty hard to be worse, isn't it? Well, it's... So, okay, let, let's go to the Jeremiah Mazzoli thing for a yeah. second, because this is a guy that everyone around here knows very well, went to Ottawa when his time here was done, or it was done for him, has been injured, is coming back... There's two ways I think this, pro- well, there's a middle ground, I suppose, but there's two ways this goes. He comes back and is motivated against the Ticats, and, you know, he's got enough practice in and he shreds them like the other quarterbacks have so far. Or he hasn't played in a long time and Ottawa's not that great and Hamilton tees off on him. What's the more likely outcome? That's probably somewhere in between. Um, you know, he's going to try and do what everybody else has done, which is probe the deep, deep secondary and take 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 care you know take take his chances there that uh, if it does get intercepted it's deep uh, and and just to stretch the field Ottawa has not stretched the field uh, in their uh, three games so far even in the game they won I they're they have by, have by far I think the least uh, uh, 20 20 yard plus the uh, fewest 20 yard plus completions so he's going to give that a go. Uh, it'll all depend on how the offensive line is doing and, and how Hamilton, you know, Hamilton's going to come and they're going to try and disguise some things. And Hamilton, you know, they, they, they're rested and, you know, they think they think that's helped them. And, uh, you know, they're talking about how well they practiced. Uh, but even, but the but the best of them, and that would include Orlando Steinauer, say, look, it just sounds like talk until we do it on the field. Mm. And, and, and I would agree. Okay, uh, so... To that point, Steve, and this is something that has stunned me when I look yeah. at the at the standings and the stats right now. Toronto's in first place in the East. Sixty, they've all played three games. Everyone in the East. Toronto has given up in those three games sixty nine points. Montreal in those three games has given up forty one points. Ottawa in those three games has given up fifty two points. Hamilton in those three games has given up a hundred and twelve points. They're almost double the next team in the East. I can't believe there's been a time when Hamilton's defense has been this far off everyone else. Uh, not in terms of that kind of point thing. They've had a few years where they haven't had a very good defense, but nothing like this. And you might want to even to stretch that point a little. Uh, of those points, Scott, 72 of them have been in the first half. That's a good point. Oh, pardon. Yeah, that's, uh, that's So they're true. down. I think, you know, what, what have the scores been in the first half? 25-6, 28-6, 28-9, that kind of thing. It's just unbelievable. What do you chalk 72? that up to? Uh Partly being ready, which is a coaching function. Uh, partly not reacting well. Uh, I, I've written about this. It should be online now or just in the next hour or two. Uh, about you know, the defense isn't the worst part of this team. But its timing has been the worst because they haven't. Uh, with all of those mistakes, Those it was like last year with Dane Evans. You know, he'd make the picks and then... For some reason, the defense would somehow pick that moment to, to, to allow a drive. When you need to pick up other players, uh, uh, let's say there was a fumble deep in the uh, was that the Toronto zone, uh, and and uh, it was a Montreal zone. And you know, instead of picking that player up, who was James Butler, they allowed a 90-yard march for a touchdown. So there was four play, four times in a row in the Toronto game when this is what happened. Hamilton had, I think, two interceptions. Uh, one, two, and out. This is on their offense. And a fumble. Okay, four things which you need to say to the guys, the other guys, 
don't worry, we'll get you back out on the field right away so you can atone for it. Every single one of those, they scored. Three touchdowns and a field goal. You can't do that. Game over. Right. There, um, Steve, there is a, you know, the line in the CFL, and they use it all the time, that the season doesn't start till Labor Day. And there is some truth to that, that you could many years, depending on how the schedule lines up, you could basically not win anything and then get hot enough in the second half to eke in, into the playoffs and then go on a run and get to the Grey Cup. Little bit different this time in the East, only because you got Ottawa, You've got uh, Edmonton next week. Then you've got Toronto, Ottawa again. If you don't somehow figure out a way to beat Ottawa one of these two times and Toronto one of these two times, not only could you be way behind the eight ball, but you're way behind in the tie break already. You could be in a world of hurt if you're Hamilton and you don't turn it around in the next few weeks. I'd say you're out of it. You know, last year you could say, well, look, look how long, strong we came on at the end. They, that's what they would say. Well, it was, first of all, it was only the final six games. Did a great job going five and one. Correct a lot of their mistakes. But even going five and one over the final third, which is terrific. If Saskatchewan hadn't screwed up, there would have been a crossover and Hamilton wouldn't have got, wouldn't have got in. So a lot of it depended on other people. They took care of their own business in the East by taking care of Ottawa. And even that was close. Even the games they won last year were similar to the ones they lost. Uh, and that's what you don't like to see is these recurring types of mistakes. Uh, for me, not picking each other up has been a big thing. I mean, obviously the turnovers on offense. Is, you know, you, you, you get rid of Dane Evans because of the, all those turnovers last year. And the quarterback in the first two games that you have replacement does the same thing. What do you have? Three or four interceptions in that time. And a fumble all of which were turnovers, right? And and all of them led to points. Right. So, so it is very, yeah. very frustrating. And if you don't take care of you're right, if you don't take right now legitimately I think to finish first or second, and you don't know if if third will be good enough with the West, you know, being a little better, the fourth place team in the West. You can't expect Saskatchewan on the fold again, um, or or even Calgary, who's third fourth place in the West right now. I would say that the minimum they have to win is, I think we wrote this this week, is either nine or ten of their final sixteen. That's a, or, or uh, of their final fifteen, and that's that's, you know, that's a six sixty six. And that's if, and we got to run, Steve. But that's if Toronto and Ottawa win only like five hundred or a little better than five hundred. Yeah. yeah, it's and uh, you got to assume that they got they're going to go five hundred. Uh, right. Yeah, I would I would think so. Steve, we got to run. Uh, gotta appreci- run. Okay, Scott. I no, appreciate it. Steve Milton from The Spec. You can read yeah. his stuff as he says. It'll be up at thespec.com in an hour or so. Very concerning news out of Ukraine in the last little while. Uh, you can go on Twitter. You can go on other social media and see a video of uh, President Zelensky talking about the fact that Russia, according to him, Russia has placed what appears to be explosives on the roof of several power units of a nuclear power plant in Ukraine. What this means, um, well, I mean, I think it's kind of obvious. If this really is uh, uh, setting up for an attack on a nuclear facility, not only do you have the obvious damage, I mean, look at Chernobyl for some example of what can happen, but also this would seem to be something that might draw the rest of the world into this conflict and widen it rather quickly. 
Dr. Jack Cunningham is uh, the program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, specializing in British foreign policy, Canadian foreign policy and politics, international history, U.S. foreign policy and relations with Russia. He joins us now. Dr. Cunningham, thank you for taking the time today. Thank you, Scott. Pleasure to be with you. This... um, a lot of the stuff that's happened in this war, we've heard a lot about false flags and about who's attacking who and is this real and is this country really doing this or are they trying to make it look like they're doing, you know, we've heard a lot of that. But when you start talking about an, uh, a nuclear power plant being in the midst of this, doesn't really matter at that point who blows it up. This thing would seem to accelerate this entire thing by about a millionfold, no? Well, it would complicate matters, uh, but we should... Uh we shouldn't overstate things. Let's let's keep in mind that this uh, this power plant has actually been at the center of events since the Russians took it over in March. Now, since then, they have uh, kept on uh, Ukrainian personnel to run the power plant, although there are reports that they are under uh, under very severe conditions as uh, as they do so. And the Russians have also positioned their forces in and around the plant, uh, shelling shelling at least two towns on the other side of the Dnieper River where the plant is located uh, because they they would have relative impunity uh, doing so from uh, from uh, close proximity to a nuclear power plant. But uh, on the other hand, uh, Mr. Putin is an unpredictable sort of fellow. And uh, and we d- and we don't n- necessarily know just how far he'd push his luck. I think it would be pretty damn stupid of him to uh, to actually uh, blow up the power plant because we don't know where uh, exactly what the uh, the consequences would be. They would not be confined to Ukraine by any stretch of the imagination. Chernobyl wasn't. And this is a a six reactor plant. It's the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. So if it were to uh, be blown up, the consequences could be severe. Would it be a fair guess that if it was to be blown up, and, and look, we're, everything we say comes with the caveat of, geez, I hope not, but um, if something like this was to happen, would this necessarily then draw the rest of the world into this conflict? Is this the kind of thing that becomes the, the, the it, it just pushed it too far for everyone not to? No. No, I don't believe it would. I be, it's uh... It, there's there's a big difference between uh, between this and say the uh, the use of nuclear weapons, for example. Uh, this would be a great complication and it would be a catastrophe for those in the region. But I'm I'm not sure it would fundamentally change the dynamics of, of what is still a regional conflict. You mentioned the fact that there are Russian troops in that area. Does that lead us to believe with any confidence that they might not shell it, that this is not going to happen because you don't want to necessarily blow it up if you've got troops right there? Or is Putin unpredictable enough that, you know, they would be collateral damage potentially that he could live with? Personally, I don't think he would do this unless he felt really cornered. But again, he's uh, he is somewhat unpredictable and uh, desperate men resort desperate measures. It is worth keeping in mind, though, that uh, he has actually played a somewhat more cautious, prudent game than some of his more bellicose rhetoric would suggest, particularly regarding anything having to do with nuclear weapons or uh, or, nu- or 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 nuclear energy. So I'm not uh, I'm I'm not at least yet not uh, convinced that uh, that there's anything more to this than his trying to. Uh, 
trying to intimidate the West, trying to intimidate Ukraine, trying to sow fear and doubt in the ranks of his adversaries. Do you think, though, that anything... So you mentioned that this has been at the center of things for months now, this nuclear plant. Uh, The fact that Zelensky came out and made a video to show to the world saying they're doing this, has anything changed, do you believe, then? Or is this a move by Zelensky to try and keep Ukraine front of mind and keep it in the world's focus and, hey, by the way, don't forget us, and hey, you know, I mentioned nuclear power plant, everybody's going to pay attention. Well, I think Mr. Zelensky already has the world's attention, and Ukraine already has the world's attention. I believe he's sincere in in suspecting that uh, that Putin is uh, is, uh, is, a, is is contemplating blowing up the power plant. Uh, the uh, The problem is we don't have any independent confirmation of this. Uh, Zelensky says Ukrainian intelligence has uh, has detected uh, has detected this and has detected the withdrawal of key personnel, particularly uh, uh, the uh, the Russian personnel supervising the plant in recent days, which uh, which which uh, which is in itself rather concerning. But uh, again, it's uh, it's a case of what's going on inside the uh, the convoluted mind of Mr. Putin. And uh, that on, on that, there are uh, everybody's guess is as good as everybody else's. I don't know that you can answer this, and we got to run in a second. I don't know if this is your area that you can answer this, but if this was to happen, and, and once again, I mean, heaven help us if it does, but if, if this was to happen, do we know if in the years since Chernobyl, the world has learned enough about how to contain something like this that it could be less than Chernobyl was, or would that be wishful thinking? I think that might be wishful thinking simply given the size of the power plant. I mean, as I said earlier, it's it's the largest power plant in Europe. It's got six reactors, so there's the uh, the possibility of a, colla- of a of a of a real calamity. Although the uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is monitoring the situation, seems at least reasonably confident that the uh, the Russians so far have been uh, have been acting responsibly, although they're although they are concerned. I said last thing, but I got to ask you: Would this be? Con- There's a lot of things that come up. We hear this phrase all the time. Would something like this be considered a war crime? Uh, yeah, I, su- I, I suppose it would be. It would uh, because obviously it would be uh, indiscriminate. Uh, there would be a great deal of uh, of civilian, a great many civilian casualties as a result. Arguably, it would be a war crime. As, I mean, I, there prob- there's probably a long list already that people have collected, but this would seem to be a rather obvious and egregious one. Uh, Dr. Jack Cunningham from the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. About a third of Canadians today or tomorrow in the next day or so are expected to receive a grocery rebate up to something in the neighborhood of uh, $467 if you're a couple with two children. Uh, Single Canadians will receive an extra 234. Seniors, an extra 225. That's on average. And the, the point here is that the federal government is saying, look, times are tough, inflation is up, costs of food are high, therefore we are going to help you out a little bit to make things easier. And I suppose that that is one way of looking at this. The other way of looking at this that some people have pointed to is, well, if the federal government hadn't done a lot of things in its economic policy that drove inflation up so high, they wouldn't have to be giving us some of our money back. 
Michael Veal is a professor of economics at McMaster University uh, and academics director with Statistics Canada Research Data Center joins us now. Michael, thank you for the time today. You're welcome. Good to talk to you. Well, which way do you look at it? Is this a benevolent act by a government looking to help us out from an unpredictable situation, or is this a government giving us some of our money back from a situation it helped to create? Well, sure, it helped to create it, but I think there is some uh, 2020 hindsight looking back at the pandemic period, uh, where the government, to some extent, uh, by increasing um, expenditures and by uh, setting the conditions for expansionary monetary policy, those things did contribute to our current inflation. But of course, it's not the only cause. I think we should never underestimate uh, the effect of the Russian invasion on Ukraine. That was an important component as well to the current inflation. No doubt. There, I mean, there are a lot of different things here. I, I do wonder, and, and again, I mean, a lot of people have already said this today, the idea that it, should governments be giving money back, or should it simply not be taxing us in the first place as much as they are? So I see this as a kind of a tax rebate, in, in effect, uh, although it is true that some people who don't pay taxes will receive this payment. And of course, those are the people who are uh, in the toughest position financially mm. and, and and I think deserve the money. But I do think that you know there is this point about how progressive the tax system should be. Uh, in this particular instance, I think that this is a, a justified measure, uh, but it is a one-time measure. It's not a permanent solution. I, and I would agree with your, your comment just a moment ago. I, the idea of giving money back to people who have paid taxes, that's one we can talk about. The people who don't pay because they make so little, I'm fully on board with you. If you if they are in that position where they can't afford food and they're in that lowest of low income earners, I, I would be on board with giving them the money for this. And I think a lot of people probably would. Yes, I, I think that's important to recognize that this is going to hit people in very wide um, circumstances. So some people, will, this won't make much difference to, and some people, this will be very important to. This is not the only thing. You mentioned about the rebates. We've we've got the, uh, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head now, but where the government gives you your money back for the climate change, the green refund that you get uh, every once in a while, like once or twice a year. And now we've got this one. Is this a thing that has always been done with governments where they always have given these rebates? Or is this something that this government is using more than other governments have before? I think it's become a, a popular tool. For example, you remember the Ontario government uh, uh, rebated uh, driver's license fees. Yep. Uh, I think that uh, one of the reasons we're getting it is that this is an extraordinary time. Uh, but in the case of the, the climate initiative, uh, I think the idea there was the government very much wanted to persuade people that the carbon tax was not a cash grab. Um, and so they tried to give some money back to, uh, to so persuade. Is there any thought that, and you just said a second ago too, you're 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 hitting all the notes here. Um, this is a one-time thing. Do you expect though that it will remain a one-time thing, or or once this has been done, do you think there will be pressure to say, you know what, uh, things are still difficult in six months, we better do this again? I think there might be. Uh, this is a very extraordinary inflation in a number of ways. So right now, the last rate of inflation was only 3.4%, which is, is, of course, way down from where it was. But you have to remember that the reason it is so low is largely because uh, there's this reduction in gasoline prices. So you might remember a year ago, gasoline prices were more like $2 a liter, and we now remember. they're about 20% cheaper than that. <laughs> yeah. And that brings the inflation rate down. 
But that's only the inflation rate that faces people who use gasoline in cars. If you're a person who doesn't have a lot of money, doesn't have a car, the inflation that matters to you is the grocery inflation. And uh, groceries, as we all know, uh, have gone up you know, roughly 9% over the last year. Uh, and so um, I think it may be that this is going to even out and that we will get a, a more systematic low inflation um, and not have these sort of big differences between different prices. Um, and in that instance, maybe we will not have as much pressure uh, to try to do this kind of rebate. And we keep hearing the, of this recession that is looming and that is supposed to be coming. And I suppose if we keep saying it long enough, eventually it's inevitable. But we keep hearing that we're waiting for a recession sometime this year. That could also perhaps affect what we do or don't do, or the government does or doesn't do. Yes, absolutely. I, I uh, have been suggesting that we are unlikely to have a recession. Um, I think that's a minority view. Uh, we don't know, of course, that's the that's the problem with forecasting. But I do think that if we look forward, uh, if we have continued high food price inflation during a time of recession, then that makes this kind of measure being repeated more likely. That is Michael Veal. He's a professor of economics at McMaster University and the academic director with Statistics Canada Research Data Centre. Thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate you jumping on. You're very welcome. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. I want to talk about something for a few minutes here that uh, it really sounds like science fiction. In fact, it sounds so much like science fiction that I read it and I thought, okay, this is a farce. This is a joke. This isn't real. Some, it's, it's a fake website or something. And then I found more and more stories online on legitimate websites about this. It seems as though this is real. We'll find out in a second. However, the whole idea is to battle climate change, the White House and Congress, I guess, ordered a study, and it's the United Nations has also requested a study, and the EU apparently has requested a study, to reflect, put stuff in the atmosphere, maybe moon dust, again, it sounds wild, to reflect some of the sun's rays that would help keep things cooler down here. I don't know how they get it there. I guess you'd take it up in rockets or something. Anyway, it, it is, it's a wild idea, but apparently there is something to this. I want to bring in Paul Delaney. He is a professor emeritus in the Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University. Uh, thank you for the time today. This is a wild story. Thank you for your joining me here. It is interesting, Scott, that's for sure. And you're not far wrong when you say a bit of science fiction here. Well, and I don't know about you if you had the same reaction when you first heard this and went, wait a second, am I reading this right? Because it it, it sounds like we're, as I say, going into something that you would hear about in the movies, in a movie with Bruce Willis or something, as opposed to <laughs> real life. But apparently the theory anyway is real. The theory is very real, uh, and let me just give you an example. You may recall, or you may recall reading, back in 1991, a volcano in the Philippines, Mount Pinatubo, uh, erupted. It was the largest eruption since uh, the uh, Krakatoa eruption in 1883. It put so much material into the atmosphere, it was that violent an eruption, that literally over the ensuing two years, the atmosphere perceptibly darkened you could see a lot more uh, colors vibrantly at sunset because of the amount of material that was suspended in the atmosphere and in fact the overall global temperature fell by nearly half a degree celsius 
over those two years. Now, as the dust settled out of the atmosphere, the atmosphere recovered, the temperatures recovered, and so on. It was a, a temporary effect. But it is real. If you put that type of material into the atmosphere in sufficient amounts, you can actually lower global surface temperatures. All right. Very apt choice of words you just used there when you said when the dust settled, because I have to think we, we I don't think anybody knows on a global scale, on a giant scale, if we were to try and do this, yeah, you might reflect some of the sun's rays and you might lower temperatures, but what is what are what's the the side effects of this? What happens? Do we know for sure that we're not doing horrible damage in some other way to try and solve one problem? We do not know. I'm certainly not suggesting for a moment that we should start throwing stuff into the atmosphere. I was just clarifying sure. the point no, no. that it, it is a practical consideration from the point of view that it has happened naturally on many occasions. However, uh, the the consequences of it are really unknown. We know that dust will eventually settle out of the atmosphere. And let's face it, we don't have Pinatubu re- uh, eruptions on a regular basis. There hasn't been one nearly that big in 30 years. And when Pinatubu went off, it was the first in over 100 years from Krakatoa. So to say that we understand what we're doing by depositing that level of material into the atmosphere, no, we do not. And therein lies perhaps the most important aspect of this 44-page report. It's suggesting that we need to investigate this, not by doing it, but by trying to model it and to better understand the consequences. The moment you start tinkering with the atmosphere, that's a really dangerous undertaking and one that I think very, very few, if any scientists, would suggest that you want to even contemplate without a whole lot more further research. Right, because there's no such thing as a giant vacuum cleaner that if it goes wrong, you can slurp it all up and then get back to normal. I mean, you're sort of committed. Yep. Good, good, good example. That's right. And you know, just because we lower by half a degree Celsius potentially, what other impacts are you doing to the ecosystem? The, the Earth is such an intertwined uh, type of entity that the moment you start tinkering with one area of our environment, we really do not understand how it affects other areas of the environment, and we've seen that many, many times when we've tried to change the ecological balance uh, in in certain wildlife areas. We take away one predator to hopefully improve the life right. of, of, of animals that were being decimated by that predator. All of a sudden, they run riot, and we have other problems that we have never considered. So tinkering with such a chaotic system as our atmosphere, as a global environment, which could literally affect 8 billion people uh, in the blink of an eye. No, you're not going to do that anytime soon. You need a lot more investigation, a lot more modeling on much smaller scales before you even barely contemplate the idea of doing it for real in our atmosphere. Because, and I mean, your points are, are bang on, obviously, but let's say your goal is to bring it down by half a degree. What happens if it comes down by three or four degrees? I mean, if we're, if we're, if we're talking <laughs> right. about global warming by a degree is catastrophic, well, then surely if we bring it down by three or four, that would be catastrophic as well in a different way. It's just, it's, it's just such a wild idea that the White House would investigate this and that Congress would be behind it. It, it just... It seems so out there. Well, it's a little bit of politicking, I suspect, more than anything else. Certainly what I've read, the the White House wasn't particularly enamored with the whole affair, other than 
let's do some more research. It was a report that was commissioned probably under some degree of political duress. Uh, as I say, I don't know all of the history of it, but I don't think we're going to see it happening anytime mm. soon. As you indicated, other groups are interested in the concept as a potential last ditch effort. Let's face it, if we're talking about trying to deal with climate change, let's deal with the root causes. Don't try and slap a Band-Aid in the atmosphere. Let's change the process which is generating the issue. And I think that really is the thrust that the White House was trying to suggest, as have others. Let's solve the problem. Let's not try and Band-Aid the solution. There is one fly in the ointment of this, though. You mentioned the volcanoes and the eruptions. Uh, They weren't necessarily in our area, but we've seen it with the wildfires in Western Canada and the smoke now coming here. What if another country, what if China or what if Russia or what if some of them decided this was a really good idea? We would be affected by their decision to do this. We certainly would be. Uh, the, the the atmosphere is interconnected. You cannot do that. That was another thing in the report. They said, let's create some clouds over the ocean. I don't know how you get the clouds to just stop at the coastline of Canada or pick your country and say, no, we're not going there. Uh, you know, it's science fiction. Anyway, uh, your commentary is also very, very correct. If if one rogue entity did decide to do something uh, to tinker with the atmosphere, we would all be impacted. Period. End of conversation. There is no such thing as taking a parcel of the atmosphere and doing something to it and not expecting it to disperse and disseminate around the planet. Ain't going to happen. I would hope that karma heads would prevail from any country that was contemplating this activity. Uh, Just before I let you go, one last quick question on this. Uh, Most of the reports that I've seen say this would be moon dust. Why would moon dust be particularly useful? Uh, that's a really good question because, A, we don't have very much true. dust here. And we're going off to the moon to pick up well, we'll hundreds of millions of tons. Yeah, just blow up the moon. That'll, that'll you know, spread the dust. Is that an Elon Musk website? No, no, <laughs> let me not go there. Uh, no, it, it doesn't have to be moon dust. Go back to Pinatubo. Go back to Krakatoa. I mean, if we were trying to do this, there's more than enough dirt on the planet Earth for us to use. But as I said, I don't think we're going to see this happening anytime soon. Investigations into the possibilities, into the ramifications, maybe, but I I don't think this is a realistic opportunity uh, to solve the problem. Fascinating topic, though, for sure. Uh, Paul Delaney from York University, thank you so much. Great Great conversation. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.